Good morning, everyone. My name is Professor Martin Spragon. I'm the Dean of the School of Business and Quality Management at Hamdan bin Mohammed Smart University, HBMSU. Today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Bilal Sabuni. Mr. Bilal is the Regional Managing Director for the Middle East, Africa, and Turkey at the New York-based uh, organization called GuidePoint. GuidePoint is a global intelligence organization and represents an expanding network of more than 800,000 industry and subject matter experts, which are based in more than 190 countries. And they deploy their expertise uh, on demand for targeted government and private sector consultations all around the world. Prior to joining GuidePoint, Bilal was the CEO of the US Chamber of Commerce affiliate office in Dubai. Bilal received his bachelor's degree from the American University in Dubai and his master's degree from the University of Melbourne. Please join me in giving the floor to Bilal Sabuni. Thank you. Hello to the Innovation Arabia ecosystem, wherever you are, in Dubai and around the world. Before I start, I'd like to say thanks to the organizers for inviting me again this year to contribute today. It's really an honor to be amongst such highly esteemed lineup of keynote speakers, panelists, diving into such interesting cutting edge subjects. As I was introduced, my name is Bilal Sabuni, and I am the Regional Managing Director for the American Intelligence and Knowledge Services firm GuidePoint in the Middle East, Africa, and Turkey. The topic that I'm invited to cover today is an extremely interesting one, and one that has taken the world by storm and literally gone viral due to, well, a virus. If you don't know what the virtual experience economy is all about, you'll be interested to know that it's a concept that each and every single one of you listening to me now has been a part of. You may ask, how can I be so certain? Well, Innovation Arabia is normally a live and in-person event, right? I've been invited in past years to address several hundred delegates and VIPs on a very large stage in a big fancy conference facility. But due to COVID-19, this experience has been pushed into the virtual world, with me now addressing the very same hundreds of guests, if not more, but this time via my laptop and via my internet-connected camera, straight to you who are now in the comfort of your home or office or or cafe, or metro, or wherever is most convenient to you. There's probably no better way to illustrate how the virtual experience economy is a part of our lives other than this actual, real-life, live example of this transformation of our collective experience from an in-person one to a virtual one. But before I get ahead of myself and I start to talk to you about the virtual experience economy, let me first take a minute to take the concept apart and define what the experience economy is in the first place. Notice I left the word out virtual here. We're just focusing on the experience economy and getting to know what exactly it is. So let's first for a moment reflect on how economies change. Or better yet, because this is innovation Arabia, let's focus on how economies innovate. The entire history of economic progress and innovation can be symbolically compared to a four-stage innovation evolution of the humble birthday cake. Harking back to the good old days of the farming economy, when everything was mostly made by hand within a household's basic ingredients, many of which came from the property itself from, or from a very small local market. Families, often mothers, made birthday cakes from absolute scratch, mixing farm commodities, flour, sugar, butter, eggs, that all together costed families mere dirhams. This was mostly our grandparents' generation. Now, as the farm-based economy left us behind, the goods-based industrial economy advanced. Mothers then paid 10, 20, 30 dirhams for pre-mixed ingredients in a box. They put that into a bowl, added milk from the store, and voila, happy birthday. This was mostly our parents' generation. 
Later, when the service economy took hold, busy parents started to buy pre-baked cakes from the bakery or grocery store, which at 100 or 150 dirhams cost them up to 10 or 15 times as much as the total cost of the packaged ingredients, which also cost 10 or 15 times as much as the individually farmed ingredients that our, grands, that our grandparents used. Now, in the time-starved 2000s, younger generation parents neither make the birthday cake, buy the birthday cake, nor even order it for delivery anymore. They call up the latest trending kids' entertainment venue and they throw a birthday party instead. So now, parents are spending not hundreds, but thousands of dirhams or more to outsource the entire event to a bounce tram trampoline park, to a Dubai Parks and Resorts, to a Chuck E. Cheese, a Cheeky Monkey, or some other business that can stage a memorable event for the kids. And you know what? At this point, the cake is usually given for free. Welcome to the emergence of the experience economy. Today, we can specifically identify and characterize this fourth economic offering because consumers unquestionably are desiring and demanding experiences, and more and more businesses are responding by explicitly designing and promoting them. Now, very often, people will just classify experiences as services and services as experiences. They are one and the same and should be lumped in the same bucket together, but actually not. Experiences are a distinct economic offering separate to services, just as different from services as services are from goods. In fact, if you want to be precise, you can say that all experiences are indeed a service, but not all services are an experience. I hope that makes sense. But if it doesn't, I can give you a couple of examples. I'm not sure, I, I mean, I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have been to one of those restaurants like the Hard Rock Cafe, Planet Hollywood, Music Hall, or, or even Nusrat, the Turkish restaurant with the guy that sprinkles salt like this. Well, guess what? By going to such establishments, you are taking part in the experience economy. The food is actually just a prop for what's known as entertainment. You go there to be entertained, not just to collectively sit with five other human beings to consume nutrients for your survival. You want to enjoy food with an experience and you're willing to pay for it. And you frequent such establishments more often than you would those not offering any type of experience. In many cases, the word experience here is often substituted by the word ambience. I like this restaurant's ambience more than that restaurant's ambience. Well, that ambience that you're talking about is actually a very carefully and meticulously crafted experience that was developed most likely by consultants or the establishment's leadership by design. Ambience is not something that just happens. It's a part of experiential planning. Today, businesses are drawing in consumers by offering out-of-the-box activities, fascinating displays and shows and promotional events, something, anything that can be Instagrammed or put up on TikTok or Facebook, depending on how old you are. I'm sure all of you have heard of the term edutainment, a marriage of the basic service of education and entertainment to create an experience in learning. In fact, in today's world of increased competition and commoditization of everything, there is an aggregator for just about anything. The Amazons, the Alibabas, the Booking.coms, etc. Experiences have emerged as the next logical step for leading companies to compete and survive whether they sell to consumers or to businesses, and whether they sell a service or a good. There's a slow but distinct pivot for companies beginning to compete against each other in the world of experiences. Now here you might stop me and say, hey, wait a minute, Bilal, did you say that companies that sell goods need to be competing against each other in the world of experiences? But what does a good have to do with an experience? And why does a seller of goods Need to be, you need to care at all about experiences. Well, let me open your mind as to how some clever, clever sellers of goods 
are beginning to develop experiences for their customers. Not actually to sell the experience itself, but to help sell their goods. For those of you that live in Dubai, you must have been to the famous Dubai Mall. And if you've been to Dubai Mall, you very well may have walked past a store called Hamley's. Hamley's is a toy store, plain and simple. Their job is to turn on the lights in the morning, open the doors at 10 a.m., and sell their toys to customers. But if you pay close attention, you'll see what they are actually doing is taking full advantage of the experience economy to fuel their goods business and boost sales. If you recall, as you approach the store, what's the first thing that you notice? You'll see two or three crazily dressed up store employees making a show, playing with all sorts of toys right at the entrance, right? If you're walking by, you'll need to be careful not to trip over a zooming remote control car or samples laid out to play with. Everything is accessible. A kid can spend an entire day in there engaging with different toys and games, going into the play area, testing out bikes and scooters. It's a fun place. It's an experience. Do they charge for this? Nope, not a single penny. There are parents that stop in Hamleys just for the experience, just to kill some time or let the kids expend some energy. You could very well go in there, spend a couple of hours and walk straight out, no questions asked, no dirham spent. But you know what? More likely than not, we all know it. Some small toy, at least, will definitely find a new home that day. And by design, you're going to want to visit Hamley's instead of another toy store if you're taking your son or daughter out for a reward. Actually, your kids will probably demand it. Likely than not, with everything on display as part of the experience of visiting that store, I'll bet that you're probably going to walk out with more than just the toy or toys that you initially had in mind. It's just how it works. It's the experience being used to sell goods. This will take over industries going forward. People will demand an experience when buying a toy, a TV, a carpet, or a car, or anything else. It's those companies that embrace the experience economy that will prevail. Why is it so nice to fly Emirates? Because they have transitioned from a transportation services company to a great transportation experience company. Their staff walk around taking pictures of people that want to mark the occasion of flying. Hello to the Innovation Arabia ecosystem, wherever you are, in Dubai and around the world. Before I start, I'd like to say thanks to the organizers for inviting me again this year to contribute today. It's really an honor to be amongst such highly esteemed lineup of keynote speakers, panelists, diving into such interesting cutting edge subjects. As I was introduced, my name is Bilal. And the COVID-19 virus has decimated the experience economy almost overnight. Barred from going out and being able to engage in these experiences, or they were frankly just too scared, thinking that such a physical engagement may put their very lives in danger. The experience economy died. But what was born in its place was a, a brand new era, which was brought forward, the virtual experience economy. Now, the virtual experience economy isn't, just, isn't something new. It's been around for a few years, not growing much, and mostly embraced by 
tech geeks and gamers locked away in their rooms or in the basement uh, or garages of their parents' house. But now the virtual experience economy is driving industries. Online skincare assessments, personal training fitness sessions on Zoom, and yes, even kids' birthdays with all their friends connecting in and being organized into games by an online party planner. But again here, it's not just about B2C relationships. It can also be a business that offers its services to other businesses. And this is what brings me to why I'm here, or at least why I think I am. Let me take a minute or two to share what I believe is the reason that the organizers have asked me to, to talk about this subject and why I might have the necessary background and credentials. As it turns out, GuidePoints, the company that I work for here in the region, just so happens to be one of the largest companies in the world that leverages so heavily on the virtual experience economy. Let me explain. GuidePoint is a New York-based knowledge services firm. We're in the business of intelligence and expertise and, and primary research. We're the world's biggest supplier of such intelligence and expertise with over 800,000 experts and advisors under our umbrella, ready for us to connect them to clients who are mostly consulting firms, investment companies, large corporates, or government entities for private micro-consultations over the phone, on Zoom, Teams, or whatever method of communication our client prefers. Since 2003, we have been at the forefront of the evolution from the B2B experience economy towards the B2B virtual experience economy. Let me give you a, a business-related example, somehow related to my earlier, more basic example of the evolution of the birthday cake. Let's take, a consul let's take consulting and a farmer. Before the time of consultants, farmers had to figure it out all by themselves. A farmer had to plan everything, execute everything, and improve everything on his or her own. Maybe with some guidance handed down from earlier generations, but not much more than that. That knowledge was free, but it was definitely very limited and predicated on the level of intellect and imagination, creativity, and whatever teachings may have been handed down. Then, with the service economy, farmers invited others to come over and help them with their problems, such as, for example, irrigation, piping, tractor repair, or painting a barn. But here, you were still limited to your own level of knowledge and capability. You only had a hand with the manual labor. The next stage of evolution had consultants enter the picture. Here, a pharma owner could ask a consultant to come up with a plan to help, I don't know, maximize yields of wheat and prevent losses due to damaged crops, as an example. The consultants, who may or may not be experts in wheat yield maximization and loss prevention, had to go and do lots of research, lots and lots of painstaking research utilizing services like journals and libraries to learn everything there is about the subject and develop a plan for the farmer. Then the experience economy began to take hold and GuidePoint found its gap in the B2B market. The company launched and we got involved to support, in this case, consultants with their research. We offered a, a concierge service to obtaining the expertise that was needed. It was then, and it was that experience that saved them from the service of books and journals and websites and unreliable Googling. Then very quickly after that, very soon after GuidePoint's concept really took off, the company pivoted towards the virtual experience economy, where our staff and colleagues all over the world were providing that same concierge service to our research-hungry clients, getting all their toughest professional problems and challenges addressed by experts and thought leaders from anywhere in the world, virtually, virtual. That one word opens a world of opportunity. It erases all borders and boundaries. In our business model, you are no longer confined to your city or even your country to find the best advice from leading experts to help you with your toughest challenge. We can instantaneously connect a, a China-based telecoms head of strategy with our guide point expert who may be the former senior executive of Vodafone or AT&T or Orange in, in Brazil for, I don't know, a discussion on what risks to profitability there are for a 5G rollout. It could be that a Dubai-based consultant is working for a GCC Ministry of Health and that health 
client wants to set up a government-run 3D printing facility for medical-grade heart valves. That expertise is out there, and we can capture it and offer it to our clients on a silver platter. Back in the case of the farmer we were talking about earlier, he doesn't need to be stuck to speaking to just fellow farmers in his city to give him tips on irrigation design. He can all of a sudden tap into the most cutting-edge thinking and incorporate technology that doesn't even exist in his own country boosting his own productivity and setting himself years apart from the competition. In our business, we strive to avoid the commodity mindset, thinking that our business is merely performing a function. In our case, connecting our clients to knowledgeable experts as fast as possible at the lowest possible price. What we do is go beyond this basic platform function or service and operate on the basis of providing a bespoke experience. We use our base service, the advisor connection itself, as a stage for a distinctive and memorable experience, one that attempts to transform the primary research space into one that is seamlessly integrated into our clients' extremely busy schedules, whether they are a consultant or an investor, private sector leader, or government strategist. In general, companies usually move from one economic stage to the next in very small incremental steps almost unnoticed. In its heyday in the 1960s and 1970s, IBM, IBM's slogan was, IBM means service. And the computer manufacturer indeed provided very interesting and enticing services all for free to any company that would buy its hardware. It planned facilities and their design. It programmed code. IBM in, even integrated other companies' equipment, and of course, it, it obviously repaired its own machines. Its service offerings overwhelmed the competition. Nobody else did anything close. It was genius. You sold goods by offering free services that were in high demand. But eventually, a U.S. Justice Department antitrust lawsuit was brought forward, and it required that the company unbundled its hardware, software, and services to avoid anti-competitive practices. IBM was forced to begin charging for its services, something it had been given away earlier for free with its hardware. Well, guess what? Services, as it turned out, were the company's most valued offering. Today, with the mainframe computers now long since commoditized, meaning every manufacturer's services are just about the same as the other. IBM's global services unit continues to successfully expand at high annual growth rates. The company no longer gives away its services to sell its goods. In fact, the deal is reversed. The company will buy its clients' hardware if they'll contract with global services to manage their information systems. IBM still manufactures computers, but now it's in the business of providing end-to-end B2B experiences. For a company to truly claim it's operating in the experience economy, it must be charging for these experiences. It can't be giving them away for free. Otherwise, you're not there yet. Now, for a company to evolve into truly operating in the virtual experience economy, a company, again, must be charging for that virtual experience probably at a higher rate, but lower rate is also fine. It all just depends on those margins. A key question to ask yourselves as business and government leaders are four, four key questions. One, what experience will my company or my university or my government authority offer? If your company doesn't offer a compelling experience, you will lose your customers to the guys next door like Hamley's versus the now closed toy store. Let me show you something. Does this look familiar? They're gone. The toy store ceased operations and shut down their eight huge outlets and huge distribution centers across the GCC. 400 people lost their jobs. If your, if your university doesn't provide an on and off campus lifestyle that provides an engaging and memorable experience, you're endangering yourself to be made irrelevant and undesirable to new students and parents looking for more than just education as a service. 
if you're a government authority or a country altogether. You risk losing your tourists or expat populations, or worse yet, even your very citizens. Imagine someone from a repressed country somewhere around the world. They would love to live in a place like Dubai or the UAE, just for the experience that it provides. It's not about working and eating and drinking and living and sleeping and repeating. Life is much more. Experience is what this country has done. It's a design that took years of planning and years of executing and is ever evolving. Question number two, you need to ask yourselves, how can I start to call my customers guests or members or anything except for custom? That's when you know you're on the right path to offering an experience. A traditional goods or services company has customers or clients. It's hard to label them as anything else. An experience-infused goods or services company has members or guests or, or even family. If you don't believe me, check this out. It's IKEA's family program. I'm family. I'm family taking part in an experience at IKEA. I shop, I sit on sofas, I test out items, I measure things, I eat at their cafe. It's an entire day out. There's another restaurant I love to visit in the US. It has a crusades theme with Vikings and barbarians as staff. And you are welcomed into the restaurant as a warrior. They welcome you. Hello, warriors. Let me take you to your table. It's an experience. So once you've gotten your experience down and you've tested it by being able to call your audience something more enriched than customer or client, question three, how can I take this experience online or into the virtual realm? You need to forward plan. Times have changed and they may take years to change back if they ever do. If you're not able to find a way to pivot in some way into the virtual experience economy, you will at best struggle going forward. And at worst, you'll be left behind. The organizers of this very conference have tackled this question head on. They pivoted into this virtual environment. They didn't just decide to skip this year, which would have been the easy thing to do. Maybe. Maybe things will return back to normal next year. Maybe they won't. Not doing this event was not an option. So they took their Innovation Arabia experience and turned it into a virtual one. Now, my hand on my heart, I will be the first to say, though, that I do miss the personal interactive element of meeting people and chatting on the sidelines of an event one-on-one. -on -one. While we do have a Q&A session, just in a few minutes ahead, if you wanted to engage with me one-on-one, -on -one, you'll have to track me down on LinkedIn or something and, and connect with me outside. Perhaps this is a way for this conference to continue to evolve. Maybe in future years, there will be a, a virtual lounge for us to all hang out before and after these types of keynote speeches. Perhaps we'll all be wearing virtual reality helmets and catching up virtually in person. Now, the final fourth question you need to ask yourself and achieve is, how can I start to charge my guests and members more or less for the virtual experience that you have been for, for many years offering in the past as a standard experience in person? You must charge for the virtual experience. It cannot be free. It's one of the signs that you're truly pivoting and making a success out of it. It doesn't have to be less, but if you're a first mover, you can certainly command your price. Remember my birthday cake example? How initially it was essentially free to make a cake with supplies from a farm, then more expensive to buy the box of cake mix, then progressively more expensive to buy the cake, then even more expensive to buy to throw the party? Yes, the costs, of course, are, are getting more in each step, but the margins and the profitabilities in each step are also getting larger and larger. There's no reason why the online birthday planner can't further increase margins and profitability and charge more. 
Imagine a birthday cake, the, imagine the birthday hats and games and pieces of cake being couriered in advance to all kids taking part in the party. You can command your price with that type of virtual experience. So in conclusion, as I've just about used up all my time before Q&A, I want to reiterate that the virtual experience economy is not a B2B thing. It's not a B2C thing or a goods thing or a services thing. It's truly a value thing. It's a value thing that needs, that, that now needs to be considered across all your professional lives and workplaces. It's what is going to drive our businesses and economies for the next foreseeable future. As the new normal slowly starts to become just the normal. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've walked away with something today. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, Bilal. Um, I think it's just you and me listening to each other, and, <laughs> and we have no participants. Uh, if I'm correct, is that the case? I'm looking at the participants. It's just you and me and two people from Index. Well, I, I'm sure the the audience is uh, on the Index holding. Um, On the on behalf of Index, uh, no, the audience are on another platform, so you can go ahead. Okay. So thank you so much. Um, thank you so much, Bilal, for this uh, very fruitful and insightful presentation. Now we will open the floor um, for participants and the audience to have an exchange of ideas. And if you have any questions, please feel free to bring them on on the chat box and we will uh, address them as they come. Thank you. Well, uh, as, the, uh, as the questions um, are being developed and, and being sent in, I just wanted to also reiterate my thanks uh, to Index Holding, to you, Professor, uh, and to the entire team behind this conference. It truly has been uh, uh, a wonderful experience. Um, uh, being invited again, uh, a very different experience. Uh, as I mentioned in my talk, uh, I'm, I'm much more accustomed to being invited to the, uh, the large halls and being up on stage uh, and meeting people face to face and shaking their hands and looking them in the eyes. But uh, in the absence of that, with, with so much going on, uh, it's truly remarkable that uh, the team at Index have been able to pivot uh, so so seamlessly into developing this conference, uh, bringing on sponsors who have graciously continued their support, uh, and and uh, obviously everyone that is behind the whole effort. Thank you to, to everyone involved. Thank you, thank you for that, Bilal. Is is highly appreciated. Um, I, I certainly enjoy your 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 talk. I've been listening carefully, and all the examples you provided, um, which are very illustrative. I, I'm just uh, fascinated by what's happening today with COVID and what is happening in the world of work because of this virtual economy that is emerging at astronom ast uh, astronomic uh, uh, pace. It's crazy what's happening. I start to see like, um, I I've been reading a lot and seen a lot of reports and experiencing this myself where people to, because they lose their jobs or they have job insecurities or they need alternative sources of income, they go into the virtual world and they find like completely innovative ways of making money in the most unprecedented and unexpected ways. Where, for example, I, I've been noticing like in several applications like Runscape, for example, or, or you have like a Second Life where people mm. just literally create assets and sell assets to other people. There's, there's another uh, platform called Decentralized Land where people literally, literally buy virtual land expecting that it's going to grow in price because of yeah. the location virtually. And people exchange real money for that, yeah. which is fascinating what's happening uh, in the mindset 
of people in this world. I mean, what is happening is like we are trying to reinvent ourselves and reinvent whatever exists and disrupting the economy and our mindset and our values and social interacting. Everything is changing. And literally, you see people making a life out of creating a virtual world in parallel. It's, an, it's like Avatar, like the movie. It, it's like, wow, right? So here we have a first question. How do you see the future of the global economy after COVID? And how do you see crypto coins future? Well, in, in my opinion, I mean, uh, uh, crypto coins um, have a life of their own and are not necessarily um, interlinked with the, uh, the crisis and the, the economic situation that has been uh, impacted by, by COVID. Um, I mean, uh, it's kind of a, a topic unrelated to the, to the virtual experience economy, but, but it's a fascinating one. And, and, you know, Bitcoin crossing 50, $51,000, uh, 57 now, 57, is it 57. Oh my gosh. So yeah, it, it was kind of fueled by, by Elon Musk and, and a lot of, uh, social media, uh, influencers. However, uh, I mean, that aside, uh, and focusing back to the, um, uh, the topic of uh, the economic situation and, and how it will be impacted and uh, how the virtual uh, economy um, is, is connected. I think this has been a, a, a distinct turning point um, for uh, the world, for countries, for governments, for people. Uh, there's been a, a, a reflection internally as to how uh, we will get along, uh, how we will push things forward, how we will innovate, how we will advance ourselves on a personal basis, on a group basis, as a nation, as, as, and as an entire world. I mean, supply chains have been interrupted. Uh, you know, if, 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 if China shuts down, we saw the repercussions in, in California with delays of uh, various, you know, uh, uh, iPhones and electronics and different things. Uh, food supply chains were disrupted. Food security has become a, a very, very big, important uh, subject that has been, you know, advanced and prioritized um, on, on government's agendas. So, um, you know, I have an, an interesting example. Uh, I have a friend of mine who uh, works with exhibitions and her uh, role was to create, fabricate, actual make the, the, the stands and, and make the pavilions. So she, when, when COVID hit, found her entire industry dried up because she was mostly serving the local uh, market for exhibitions and events, which were plentiful. Um, and so she was beside herself thinking, what am I going to do? I'm going to basically close down my, uh, my business. It was after an, uh, an interaction that I had with her to kind of say, well, why are you thinking so, um, so local? Think more regional, think more global. There is now an embrace towards virtual interaction. Whereas before, you know, um, uh, last year and beyond, you know, you could, you would struggle to get people onto a video conference call. And it was difficult to get on a plane, uh, to, to kind of meet somebody just for maybe a small little, uh, transaction. But now, you're able to do that and you're able to do that at scale. So what she did is that she, you know, using the power of the internet and the power of various tools out there, she began to target systematically different people, different countries that were still putting on events that were still not locked down. And she was fabricating here and exporting to these clients all over the world. And she began, she, she basically sustained her business using the, the virtual economy. Now, what she also did to create an experience out of this now was to do consultations on design. So she was now uh, working with conference organizers and, and being a part of building that experience from ground up using her experience. So it's Thank quite fun. Thank you for that, Bilal. I would like also to add um, um, a, a little comment on that as well uh, on crypto uh, coins, although it's not the scope exactly of, of uh, the session today, but to some extent, you know, and directly is related. And what we can say a little bit is, well, uh, cryptocurrencies actually are a, are a movement. I believe it's like a social movement of decentralizing power away from centralization uh, as a mass population. 
is a way of reinventing oneself and, and societies. Uh, again, there, there are fundamentals behind that. I have no idea. Who knows? No one knows. However, it's a way of reinventing and playing. And it's a way of, you know, eventually making money or losing money. But again, we are talking about these this, this, um, different platforms like cryptocurrencies and so many other platforms that are there in a gamification purpose. But at the same time, people are transforming gamification to monetize and make a living out of that through alternative sources of virtual jobs in this virtual economy. So I believe like virtual currency from that point of view is exactly uh, a, an effort from humankind to reinvent itself and make money out of nowhere where there's no governance, there's no uh, regulation, and it's a way of really going uh, to the next level with that. Uh, again, uh, coming a little bit to cryptocurrencies, today is around 57, 56. Remember that in March was $3,000, $3,000 this March. I saw that on my screen. And today is around 55, 57, and people are predicting that, uh, you know, is the game is going to go up. But coming back to uh, Elton Musk, he said, if you invest in cryptocurrencies, make, be ready to make a lot of money and be ready to lose 80% of your capital invested. Because generally <laughs> the corrections go like that. Go like that. Two, two years ago, Bitcoin was 20,000 and went down to actually 3,000, right? And it's more or less that, that ratio. Today we are talking about, about um, uh, 57, 60. Be ready to see Bitcoin at 10, 10,000. It's not a joke, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then be, be ready to see Bitcoin at 100. Who knows? Or to zero. Who knows? But again, if, if we try to understand the philosophical underpinnings of Bitcoin, is exactly an effort to reinvent oneself in this new paradigm shift we are experiencing. It's a structural change. It's about Halocracy is about decentralizing power, it's about reinventing oneself and giving the power to people by, by themselves. They proclaim themselves protagonists of what they do, and it's a way of reinventing and innovating through this gamified new world we are experiencing under virtual platforms. So I, I think that, that that idea complements very much what you said, Bilal. Um, here we have a comment. Uh, thank you so much for the lecture. As an owner of an SME, small medium enterprise, how can I be prepared for the virtual experience economy in the future? How can a small company be prepared for the virtual experience economy in the future? Bilal, the floor is yours. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there's not nearly enough information there for me to, to kind of really give you a, a, a customized or tailored uh, answer to your business model. Uh, I don't. You're an SME. I, I don't know if you're uh, a B2B player. Uh, if you're if you're an SME that caters to businesses, or if you're B2C, if you're a retailer of of a good or a, of a service. But irrespective of all of that, um, I think one thing that um, I, I really wanted to stress um, uh, now, and what I stressed in my, in my talk, is that uh, it doesn't matter uh, whether you're big or small. Whether you're a, a one-person show or uh, an organization with uh, 50,000 employees all over the world, um, it's very clear there's a signal now today, and, and COVID just expedited that signal. Pushing your businesses, pushing your um, uh, marketing, pushing your communications, pushing uh, your, your, your infrastructure into the cloud is extremely important. Disruptions to businesses based on um, natural disasters, floods, hurricanes, um, uh, sandstorms, if, if, if you're living in, in, in this region, um, they happen. Uh, is this going to be the last viral outbreak? No, it won't. There's undoubtedly going to be uh, future epidemics, future potentially pandemics. So it's very important to embrace the... Um, the opportunity today that we have been presented with by, you know, basically it's a forced uh, 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 engagement by this virus to consider our options on how to kind of um, embrace the virtual world. Um, so just, you know, uh, to my, my response to that, um, 
that owner of the SME is to kind of really reflect upon his or her um, operations, dissect the business, look at every single aspect and see what can be virtualized. Can marketing campaigns become move from uh, brochures or newspaper advertising uh, in paper to more kind of virtual? Um, can, again, uh, any part of, of that experience or that process, the sales process or, or any process be virtualized? I mean, that's my, my basic uh, uh, advice. There is an opportunity there and anyone can uh, virtualize uh, uh, in whole or in part their business. Thank you for that, Bilal. Um, very insightful indeed. Um, what, I, what I'm noticing more and more is that because of what we are experiencing today with this pandemic and this revolution of uh, technology we, we experience on a, on a daily basis, things are changing. There's no way back. There's no a point of return. We crossed that. We broke it. We cannot go back to what we, where we were before. COVID made a statement <laughs> we are we are there. We we are some people surviving, some people thriving, right? Uh, but what is clear is one thing: it's a world of opportunities. It's a world of affordances, and you take your own position and where you want to be. I fully agree when you say everything is about experience in the future, or you create and deliver a significant experience which is meaningful to your target audience, or you are going to be knocked off by the market. I buy your neighbor. I fully agree with you. Uh, Mm -hmm. The challenge is, what is that experience? How to deliver that? How to really reach that target audience in a very precise fashion? And that's the challenge we all face. And exactly the way you answer the question is is, is just spot on. It's like you need more context to understand more, which is the nature of the operations. Uh, But something that we we can, can, um, you know, think about is that, in a, in a world of constraint, in a world of limitations today, in a world of this is the frame and this is, you know, uh, lockdowns are lockdowns and you cannot violate or go against that. In a, in a world where you have so many limitations and this is allowed, this is not allowed, now creativity emerges. And people generally tend to think that because of constraints, innovation is dead and it's completely the opposite. The message that we should bring about would be because we have so many constraints and so many limitations today is because we can think of completely new ways of doing things and we invent ourselves to really go and crack those constraints and we invent them and we invent around them. And generally, companies like Google, they say, when we put constraints on resources to our employees is when they bring about innovations where we're unthinkable because, you know, when you are free, everything is allowed. But when you have so many, you know, barriers, I tell you, but do something, invent something, and there's where the challenge pops up and things happen. So in a world of constraints like we have today, again, it's about the position you take, but you have an amazing possibility to make a new reality, to invent your own reality and to make it happen. Again, I know a lot of my friends that are thriving right now, doing a variety of completely diversified uh, things, and some of them are making significant money, money they never done before, and they're enjoying so much the game. Um, we have a couple of minutes before we conclude with this uh, fascinating session. Is there any idea or something that you would like to share, Bilal, before we conclude the session? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, no, nothing really that I had uh, on top of my talk. I mean, I think uh, just based on the last question that we had uh, on on what this SME uh, owner can do, it's just really to kind of, again, look at your business, look at the business model, dissect it, and find any single way. So let me give you an example. A car dealer here in Dubai um, has developed a room in their dealership, in the, in the showroom, where you walk in and you experience um, what it feels like and what it sounds like to be in this car that I was uh, looking at. Wow. 
Wow. And, and so they eliminated the, the test drive um, because people were, uh, you know, didn't want to get into a, a random car and, and touch things. So they developed the experience there in a room that was sanitized and they had speakers set up. And it was, again, something very innovative. And it was a way that they were um, uh, looking to get a leg up on the competition, you know, because it was very impressive to, to hear the engine and the noise and, and they had set up kind of uh, a, 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 some wind that, that would be generated. It was quite, quite impressive. So uh, there are ways to always innovate. Uh, the, this is a, fa a fascinating example. Uh, when, I, I, loved, I, I love that because it's like when you engage in this experience and this sensoriality of something that implies and makes you flesh, mm -hmm. what would you feel? If you yeah. were in the real thing, right? And this is a principle that you bring about that is so important because you can extrapolate this as a trigger, as food for thought. When you say, what kind of experience, what can I do? Well, think about what would you feel if you were consuming your product or if you were engaging in such, in such a thing, such an event, what would you feel? And try to replicate that in a different way, but to bring you to the same To, to the same experience. Um, I would like just to conclude saying that race killing, we have to learn in this, in this context to unlearn what we have learned and reskill ourselves to go to the next level because only those that can really unlearn the learned things and learn new things are the ones that are going to not just survive but thrive in this challenging environment that again, as Chinese people say, is a window of opportunity. And you are there, the protagonist, to create your own affordances and your own destiny by your actions. Bilal, I want to thank you so much for this insightful uh, presentation, your very brilliant comments. And I would like to thank again the audience and the organizers for this fantastic session. Thank you so much. It's one o'clock sharp. We we'll leave you for a coffee break, virtually, of course, for 30 minutes. Please, looking forward to seeing you at 1.30 for another fascinating session. Thank you so much, and see you in the next one. Bye, Bilal. Bye, everyone. See you around. Bye-bye.